This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. God, it is bumpa to bumpa. Oh my God. Oh my, oh my. Oh my God. It is bumpa to bumpa. Podcast, episode 227 for November MMXXII. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So... If you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, if you're listening to this particular episode rather than watching, then you will have heard the new hit single after years of being pretty quiet from Bubba Moose featuring a new artist that's 
pretty hot on the scene, the mayor. So I hope that you enjoyed that. Now, Professor Coca, my chief Tata correspondent, she is getting fed up with these long intros. And since she is a sponsor of mine and gives me oodles of cash each episode, I feel like I should honor her uh, frustration, her annoyance. And she didn't really make a request, but I, I could kind of read between the lines. She doesn't want an intro this time. So I will just say as a non-intro that as I record, tomorrow is my birthday. Everyone on the social medias know because I like to do a countdown. It's like the one <laughs> entitled thing that I do in my life, I feel. And Thanksgiving is also coming up. So happy Thanksgiving if you celebrate that. And if you don't, I just hope that you have a nice time gathered with friends, family, and maybe some good time off from work and everything. So there you go. No intro. Aha. Find your joy segment, Shag's Mac and Cheese of Comfort and Joy. I would say, now we're not going to talk about it because I'm not doing an intro, work has not been ideal. I could share some things with you. It seems like from... (laughs) You know, you leave one stable job and then you encounter years of instability and things that I feel like when I was younger, I would have put up with. But now I advocate for myself more. And I also recognize like this is this is not good. And also, it seems like I've been having a tough time of it (laughs) recently and for maybe a couple years now. And I think at one point. It will it will look up for me and uh, it'll be my time, but it is not yet my time. So finding joy is great. Of course, once I leave the school building, I just try not to. I mean, I tell other people about what happened, but don't really carry that with me. I have been enjoying playing. I haven't gotten too far into it, but I've been staying away from social media so I don't get spoiled. God of War Ragnarok. God of War is one of my favorite series on PlayStation. I've been with it for a while. That was my first mature M-rated video game that I ever got. I had to like convince my my mom in particular, like, you know, it's all about the Greek and everything. And good thing she didn't walk in when Kratos was doing some of this, his sexy time way back when. But this new era of God of War is just so amazing. And seeing his time with his son, something that you wouldn't expect from the Kratos of old. So that's been great. And I just encountered a section that I was super surprised at. And very similar to The Last of Us Part Two, I was surprised that something happened. So I'm I'm glad that that wasn't spoiled. But still, I'm told that or I've seen it's like 28 to 60 hours, depending on play style. And because I look around and try to find things, I feel like I'm going to be closer to 60 hours. So it's going to take me a while. So can't really look at or watch anything. So that's been a lot of fun. And then I'm going to talk about it for my anime watch list. But Romantic Killer was so amazing that 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 brought me so much joy and i destroyed that whole series which it wasn't very much in a weekend so i'm sad that it's over with but that was that was great okay let's talk about some quickies so i am going to do what four quickies of nightwing nightwing 90 through 93 and i think your ears will prick up Four ninety three because of course you know what that means. So we're going to go through this pretty quickly. And the only one I want to share, I think, 
visually is, of course, 93. And I want to talk about this. Okay. So Nightwing 90. And of course, I shouldn't say of course, but Devin Grayson is the writer on this arc or storyline. And we're continuing with all that blockbuster stuff that's been going on. The cover date is April 2004. And Nightwing, if you remember in 89, Blockbuster destroyed his apartment complex. And Nightwing is just, I forgot to find a synopsis for this one. So Nightwing is just, he's absolutely savage in number 90. He is going through all of Blockbuster's minions one by one. We really see Nightwing unleashed here, basically telling them give up the game and also in a certain way looking for Blockbuster as well, but just going through them. We see many Isaacle Word bubbles, which are my favorite. So I am happy about that. But I think besides seeing, yeah, what Nightwing would be like unleashed, I think this is the closest almost you see him I would say like as Batman, because he's very much, he's like close to the line. He's doing some pretty big physical damage to the people that he's running up against. And we know that when people go up against Batman or do something that really gets Batman's goat, then Batman unleashes and wreaks havoc and we nightwing is very much someone i think who he can get upset but i feel like he is calmer and more level-headed and he doesn't inflict as much bodily harm so to see him like this was really startling and I would almost say that he crosses the line if only if we think comparatively about where his line would be compared to other people's line. But I also, again, kind of calling out Batchurk here, I could potentially have put Huntress in this issue and it would be like, yeah, that's totally Huntress doing it, even though she, of course, you know, goes lethal sometimes. But just some of the stuff that he's doing, I'm like, Huntress has done you know, similar things, shooting people with arrows, et cetera, leaving them, you know, in the ICU. And, you know, she gets told off for it. But Nightwing here, no one's coming and saying, you need to stop what you're doing. But you see very much, I think, the emotional toll that the previous issue, the apartment complex, Blockbuster continually going after him, the people he loves, the fact that emotionally he's very broken down on many levels romantically as well as familiarly with uh, the apartment building and Barbara. So uh, it makes sense. And, and we just see what what happens when he reaches his limit. Nightwing 91, subtitle Rekindle. May 2004 is the cover date. Blockbuster has thrown every assassin and cutthroat he could at Nightwing. Now he's bringing in his biggest gun, Shriek. The gloves are off for the big rematch between hero and villain. I found it very interesting that Nightwing, if Josh were on here, he would have said homeless, homeless cop, that Nightwing is homeless at one point and actually sleeping under newspapers. I mean, he I shouldn't say at one point. Well, at one point he's sleeping under newspapers, but he is homeless. And so it's interesting that he could have found other places to go. He did stay with Barbara that one time. But remember, she said maybe it was a mistake. So he knows he can't go back there. Not seeking comfort from comfort or a place to stay from Batman is interesting. And Alfred calls him, I think right before, if I recall correctly, Alfred's talking with him and is like, you have some place to go. And he's like, I'll figure it out. I think it again is just speaking to where he is psychologically and that he, he's not in the mind space to be with anyone at this point in time. So is he 
you know, looking for comfort or is he just on this mission to take care of it? And is he going to find a place to rest his head and have people taking care of him? Or is he just going to get the bare minimum rest so they can take care of himself in order to take care of other people? And that's, again, very similar to Batman, I think, where Batman has learned the the limits that his body can take and pushes himself to that point. He knows he needs to sleep at some point. So he'll put in his whatever five hours, maybe at the very least, or the, maybe at the very most, and then get back to it. And I think, yeah, Nightwing, that's all he needs is like, well, here's a fire escape. Let me put some some newspapers over me and then take a nap and then I'm back to it. Amy is, yeah, I also said that this just feels like a completely different character, which Again, I think it makes sense. It's just really startling. But we see what happens, you know, when when trauma or something huge happens to a character. It, it totally makes sense. Amy, friend and now captain, of course, desperate to help him. But he's just beyond the the Blue Haven PD right now because she's like, maybe if I give him his job back, it'll be OK. It's it's not going to be OK. Then we have Nightwing 92 Flashpoint, June 2004 is a cover date. Nightwing versus Blockbuster. Blockbuster has thrown every resource at his disposal into war against Dick Grayson, and Nightwing has weathered the storm despite a slew of shocking casualties. But now the war boils down to two men face-to-face at last. And I should say again that that Shriek fight, I mean, Shriek didn't really stand a chance. But we have Battle Damage and Shirtless Nightwing, which I love to see. I actually really love Battle Damage action figures, Battle Damage images and things of of favorite characters i think it's just it shows like they've really been through it i recently finished crash bandicoot 4 which is a really difficult game and after beating it there's like a battle damaged crash bandicoot he's got like a black eye he his one of his arms i think was in a cast which is was pretty fun Tarantula, I think, is Donovan's favorite word, a hypocrite, with what she's saying, blaming Nightwing for the deaths of the people in his apartment building, particularly John Law, because that's really all that she cares about, since she was doing stuff for Blockbuster. So, I mean, where she doesn't have a moral or ethical lake to stand on, and that that's, like, ridiculous that she's like, how dare you did this? I'm like, you broke Babs and dick up. You were doing things for blockbuster against stick so really whatever uh, tarantula has a weird kink i guess i shouldn't say weird but she has a kink wanting to watch nightwing get beat up the reason why i don't want to say weird is you know people have kinks so i guess we shouldn't we shouldn't judge them for it even though i have my own opinions so yeah it's kind of weird just like you know let me know next time and on one hand, you could be like, well, maybe she's joking, but given Tarantula's character and the things we've seen, it seems realistic that she's like, no, she probably would certainly enjoy that. The reporter, Ms. Michaels, knows that Dick is Nightwing. She hasn't known the entire time. We find out she was actually hired by Blockbuster to figure things out, and then she kind of connected the things. So that was interesting. Nightwing and Tarantula, in particular, I would say Nightwing, because he tries to stop Tarantula from killing Blockbuster, goes through this whole thing to get Blockbuster's confession on tape. And that's why he's beat up, because there's no coercion or anything. And then they give it to somebody. And I think Tarantula's brother, if I'm remembering correctly. And then he destroys it. And after everything, there were no copies or anything. And there's just this powerful image, set of images, really, of Nightwing shaking with rage of, of, again, Blockbuster is just not 
going to meet justice. And then Nightwing has his own signal, which uh, Amy and her husband put up. And that was interesting, kind of trying to get him to come back again from where he is and, and come back to the BPD. And then we have Nightwing 93 Slow Burn. July 2004 is the cover date. Nightwing has lost his job, his love, his home, and several of his closest friends. Now it's just Nightwing versus Blockbuster, the deadliest of adversaries in their final face-off. Some questions before I get to what I wanted to talk about, I guess, which I won't talk about too long, but just a little bit. Ms. Michaels calls Nightwing son, which I thought was strange because she seems or they seem of comparable age. So I'm not necessarily sure about that, but she's dead now, D.E.D. dead. So I suppose it doesn't really matter. Uh, There is a discrepancy I noticed between issues of how to spell Rolly. Is it R-O-L-Y or R-O-L-L-Y? Who knows? This scene that I've put up here is really interesting. I said, whoa. Uh, Nightwing allows, so, you know, Torrential want to kill Blockbuster originally uh, in the previous issue. And he said, no, there's another way that way didn't work out. And so now he's just fed up and he realizes, yeah, it's never going to stop. It's never going to go away. And he walks away and allows Tarantula to kill Blockbuster and I'm sure there may have been blood splatter, but I don't know how much actually got on his hands with the fact that there's that image at the bottom there. There are a lot of great images, I think, in this whole arc and in particular in this episode that I'm talking about these issues. But just him looking down at his hands and sort of a Lady Macbeth sort of way of like, what have I done? I wondered, you know, is this the same or worse as when he, quote unquote, killed Joker because he went too far there and he was the agent of that killing and here he allows it his inaction allows that killing and he's involved though he isn't necessarily the agent and i think figuratively there certainly is blood on his hand now one could say that this is worse if only because it seems like blockbuster is really ded dead and we know that joker ended up not coming back I can't, that was like a year ago, wasn't it, that I covered that or a couple of years ago? Both, I think both circumstances, Nightwing is is like psychologically in a similar place. This, he seems maybe farther gone than the other one, just with everything that has happened. Yeah, job, love, home, friends. And he is just pushed to the breaking point. And he is blockbuster, similar to Joker, is someone that, you know, justice, he might be locked up, but it seems like he can always get out. So Joker can always escape, but blockbuster just has so much connection within the the, the system that I feel like he's always going to be free. So it's it's hard to compare them. You'd think that being the the actor in the killing would make it worse but this one because we know that blockbuster is actually dead and and nightwing turned away almost seems maybe the worst of the two and i don't know how he's going to necessarily come back from this because we know the emotional toll that the joker killing took on him and so now we have 
we have this. I did ask, perhaps I've upset her, but I have not received any responses from Devin Grayson. But I did ask uh, again about Nightfall. Is this Nightwing's Nightfall? It seems like it is. And the comparison between this and Joker's last laugh or Joker's last laugh. And I also asked her about the rape, which we know earlier on when I had tweeted to her, she did say that she regrets this thing and she's she's learned more from it. So he he comes up and he's apologizing to Bruce, of course, because what he has done and the line that he has crossed, allowing Tarantula there. So ay ay ay. So Tarantula. It's interesting that Nightwing says, I failed you, which could be a connection. And, oh, well, she does say, talk to me. But I guess he failed Tarantula in that at the beginning, when they were first introduced to each other, he was trying to take her under his wing. And so now he's just allowed her to to kill. I mean, I guess he's failed Tarantula. He's failed himself. He's failed Batman. Uh, but he certainly was in a really, really bad position. And not many people are like Batman in that they're like strong enough to like see all this bad stuff happening and, and walk away. So I think there is a, a difference perhaps in maturity. And Nightwing, I think his heart is shaped differently than Batman's that that the emotional connection, I think, was just too hard to sever, whereas Batman can kind of disassociate and be like, all oh, these bad things happen to people I love, but the mission, the mission, the mission. And so I think it's just harder for Nightwing to disassociate in that way. But anyways, uh, it's getting increasingly uncomfortable, certainly. He does say, don't touch me. I'm dot, 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 a poisonous numb. I killed him. We killed him. And she says, no, I, so she straddles him, removes her, her hair clip, I guess. So the, you know, it's sexier. I don't even know. And as you can see, straddles him here with that. And uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that's good. That's right. We're free now. He can't hurt us anymore. So very, that's interesting. It's never going to stop. Never. So he's repeating what he had said before. So first of all, art wise, the red border is similar to the red border we had back here. The red border around the rape scene is very similar to the red border we have around Blockbuster getting killed. So that is already a bad association. The fact that murder is associated with this sexual act. Okay. So if you had a question about whether this is rape or not, I think that border sort of clears it up that he does say, don't touch me. Don't Touch me, I'm poisonous, numb, da-da-da-da-da. It's, ooh, okay. Word-wise, I don't want to get myself into trouble here. It's interesting what he says. The don't, I think, in general, would be like, okay. But then, don't touch me, I'm poisonous, numb. And I'm thinking about other world, like, I'm bad, you can only hurt me. And then there's like a kiss scene. And then I don't know that we necessarily like the other person, you know, you're not. But the fact that he he is traumatized, he is physically worn out, mentally worn out, emotionally worn out. And this woman is forcing him to have sex. I think um, I think it's pretty clear that it is assault and rape. And I mean, he doesn't have any sort of strength to speak of to to prevent this from happening. Now, the question is, 
why and I don't know, like I'd have to I think someone should write in and, and tell me, remind me I was going to look this up, but I forgot why. Why was this so controversial at the time? And I will say, because I do, I like to own up to things that I used to make fun of this. I don't think I had ever, I may have read it and looked at it, but I remember like years ago, I, I was a, a baby comics reader. I used to joke, you know, of, of Nightwing getting raped by Tarantula and really had no idea <laughs> what the circumstances or the context who Tarantula was. I think I used to say it to Nightwing fans um, in my circle. I don't know why I thought that would be funny. I think it was like a trolling, but it was just wildly inappropriate and I very much regret doing it, but it happened. And so now I'm owning up to it. So I knew it was coming and I was interested to see how this would play. I don't find this controversial with the exception, of course, of rape being bad and controversial, but just like, why would people be really, really upset that this is happening? And I think that it makes sense given Tarantula's character. This is not out of left field for what Tarantula has been doing. If this was just like randomly, let's take let's take Tarantula and have her do this bad thing to a, a beloved character, then I'd be like, yeah, that's there is no lead into that. But no, she's been doing stuff similar to this, uh, not to this degree, the entire time, every time that we see her. So it makes sense character-wise for her. And we see female characters get raped all the time and depending on who the character is i would say more often than not there's not a public outcry like the only public outcry i really remember is sue dabney in and dr light that's the only thing i can remember of like everyone else just kind of like reads past it and they're like well that may you know sure i mean women get raped all the time but when a man gets raped then people are like how dare you do that to this character and perhaps because I've read the entire run of Invincible and Invincible gets raped and that's that was really powerful and uncomfortable scene. And then he's that trauma stays with him and he can't really intimately be with E for a very long time and has trouble seeing that other person. I thought that that was done really well. And so why not have that, you know, happen to a, a male character. I, I think people are just really uncomfortable with male characters getting raped and men do get raped in real life. So I feel like if you're going to do it constantly to women, then maybe you should show that, that there is a flip side to it and that your masculinity is not going to save you from uh, an attacker or an aggressor. Now, I will say that if this is it and this is all we see, then there is a problem because 94 on should be dealing with this trauma. Yeah, no, I, I would say that it's powerful and that it makes me feel very uncomfortable and makes Tarantula seem even worse than I ever thought that she was leading up to this, that she would look at how Dick is right now and think this is the perfect time to have sex with him and take advantage of him. And she, I think for her part, does not think that she's raping him. I think that she is very much hypersexual and violence and this situation in general just 
gets her horned up and she's ready to go. And, you know, they killed Blockbuster. They're free of him. She's super excited. In another context, we would have, I think of the Americans, I think it was the pilot episode where that the husband and wife were not, I can't remember their name. The husband and wife were not really, I mean, they were married, but they didn't really love each other. And it was because there is this sort of specter in the wife's wife of this guy who would sexual assault her and was like the handler and they ended up killing him. And after that, she uh, initiates sex with her husband. And for like the first time, it seems like they're actually being intimate with each other. And because of this, like killing, you're like, yes, you know, you're free of, of this thing that's been over you. So that that would make sense. And so I think that's where that's where Tarantula is. But Nightwing is just completely out of it. It's basically it, it feels like raping someone who has been roofied i would say or is just really drunk um because he he doesn't necessarily i mean he's just saying the same thing over and over again so it was just not good his consent was not there an unspoken consent i think was not there okay I think that's that's it for that. So I, I would love to actually hear from you all what your experience was of that particular issue when it came out. I and then what you think of it now. And if you remember what the actual, you know, why did people have a problem with it? Was it just because they were uncomfortable that this happened to their favorite character? They should feel uncomfortable. And just because it's their favorite character and a man doesn't mean that that character is safe from being raped. So, again, I think that's psychologically fascinating that no one's no one's freaking out over women getting raped unless it's Sue Dabney. So there you go. I recommend reading the power by Naomi Alderman, because that there are, I don't want to say several, there's one that I probably won't ever forget, but there are rape scenes in there, women raping men. And it makes you, and really there's like sexual violence and violence against men. And it's really interesting psychologically how as a reader, and this is true of people that I spoke to about that particular work as well, how uncomfortable we get when that is happening. And that the level of discomfort does not match that when we're reading and happening to women. And it's because we are now numb to women getting raped, that it's just like, it's commonplace. But when we see it, the other side, you're like, oh my gosh, this makes me feel really uncomfortable. I really don't like this. That's crazy. We should be like that for anyone with any sort of sexual assault happening to them. So that's, I think, that speaks really negatively about media and what we are digesting from media. And again, I go back to this thought of this special that I want to do about rape and media and what is the level of uh, appropriateness that we should use it and how and, you know, when. So I I think it should be sparse, obviously. And well, I don't want to spoil that panel whenever it happens, but it's something that I I am very much interested in to be sure. Okay. So we are moving on to back row 49 and 50. These are our, this is the main event of this particular part. So back row 49 dead among the dead men, April, 2004 writer, Dylan Horrocks, penciler, Rick Leonardi, inker, Jesse Delperdang and colors, Jason Wright, elderly widow, Mrs. Krupp, 
Krupotnik attends the funeral of her husband, Samuel. The funeral home director, Mr. York, opens a casket and Mrs. Krupotnik, Krup, oh my gosh, Mrs. K, exclaims that her husband is gone. And Mr. York tells her that he has indeed gone to a better place. And they point out that the corpse is literally gone. And Mr. York says, quote unquote, not again. Alfred Pennyworth introduces Cassandra Kane to her new apartment now that Batman has fired her as Batgirl. Alfred explains that her every need will be taken care of and tries to comfort her. He tells her that Batman is not disappointed in her and she has achieved much more in her short career than most superheroes do in a lifetime. Alfred leaves and Cassandra sheds a single tear, one of those very dramatic things. Later, she walks through the streets of Gotham and spots a Batman t-shirt that makes her upset. In the Gotham Clock Tower, Robin tells Oracle through the video screen that Soul, that drug, is back and worse than ever. He confides in Oracle that he wishes Batgirl was on the streets helping them. Cassandra arrives at the Clock Tower and Oracle is surprised to see her. Cassandra asks why and collapses crying in Oracle's lap. Oracle tells her that apparently it's a very comfortable lap. Oracle tells her that there's so much more to life than being Batgirl, and she's free to experience that now. Cassandra tells Oracle that Batman said she was, quote unquote, erratic and irresponsible. Oracle is frustrated by Batman's inability to express any emotion other than anger. She then explains that Batman fired Batgirl because he was feeling guilty about depriving her of a normal life. Oracle tells Cassandra that Batman just wants her to be happy, and Cassandra insists that she was happy. Oracle insists that Cassandra is not happy and offers to do anything she can to help. Cassandra asks for Oracle's old Batgirl costume, and Oracle refuses. Cassandra decides to steal it anyway. Steal it! Did you hear that, Donovan? And sews it to fit her better. Robin struggles with a riot of soul junkies that he cannot contain. Batman is not responding to communication, and Oracle cannot find backup to help him. Robin is knocked down for a second. When he gets up, every rioter has been knocked out. Batman arrives and recognizes this move as the falling leaf, a nerf pinch invented in the 16th century by Chinese monks. By the time the rioters wake up, the drug will have left their system. Batman tells Robin that he only knows two people who can use the falling leaf, David Kane and Cassandra. Batgirl learns about the corpse thefts and finds a truck full of stolen dead bodies. This leads her back to the Lost Girls in Gotham Cemetery, the female street gang who are distributing soul. It is revealed that the scientist applying the Lost Girls is Dr. Death. Dr. Death requires fresh human cadavers to make soul because he uses a neural extract. Batgirl is hiding in the pile of bodies they use, and she jumps out to attack the Lost Girls. The metahuman Hope kicks her down and intends to kill her for the pile, but Batman arrives and knocks out Hope, looking very disappointed in Batgirl. She's about to get fired again. There is an editorial note that tells us this takes place before Birds of Prey 63, just FYI. And that synopsis was provided by DC Wikia. Okay, so first of all, we have this particular cover where Cass's outfit or Cass herself is in one of the costume cases in the Batcave. Behind her, we have one of the Robins, perhaps Jason Todd. It kind of seems like she's dead. They were going to see Cassandra actually die, but that is not the case here. I would say in here with this Alfred and Cassandra conversation that Alfred is spouting a bunch of lies to Cassandra due to master Bruce's inability to speak openly and honestly about his feelings. You may well have been left with the impression that he was disappointed in your performance as Batgirl. Please believe me. However, 
when I say that nothing could be farther from the truth. No, he is disappointed in her. He basically said that. So, you know, that's a lie. I don't know where this is coming from. He's both both Barbara and Alfred, I feel like, are interpreting Batman's actions inaccurately in order to maybe make Cassandra feel better or just because they feel like Batman is a is a better guy than he actually is. Okay. It also stabbing the, or twisting the knife there. You have achieved more in your few short years as Batgirl than many costume heroes manage in a lifetime. Your short career. So it's over. But hey, you did a good job, which is very interesting. Also, Cassandra is a child. Okay. She is a child. Yes, a young adult, but she's a child. She should not be living alone. She doesn't have any hobbies. She can't read. So literally, what is she going to do? Just sit around? What? Look out the window like this? shed her one tear down her eyeball i don't know she goes of course to visit oracle and we have this scene at the bottom right with Cass and crying in babs's lap and immediately of course i thought of nightwing doing the same thing a couple issues ago after Haley circus got burned down that bad sure does get a lot of people crying in her lap lately. I do feel like, though, that this is typical. And honestly, it just makes sense why she explodes when she finally releases some emotion. Because people put everything on her and she has to absorb it all and not give way to her own emotions when other people are having their moment. I mean, think about Officer Down. Everyone is freaking out around her. Because of Jim being in the hospital, Batman can't handle his own emotions. And she, when she had every right, the most right perhaps of everyone, because she's literally related to Jim Gordon, her father, that she is like, this is what we're going to do. And so, you know, when you have to bottle that up, then when there's like, at some point, it's just going to explode. And so I think that's why... I don't know that we can necessarily blame her when she does have really angry moments or perhaps how she reacted with Dick, because I think it just things pile on around her. It's interesting how Babs both condemns what Batjerk did and also tries to explain it to Cass, thereby almost agreeing with him. He said, I was erratic and irresponsible. He said, I was jeopardizing the mission. Bab says, damn it, that's so typical of Bruce. The man is incapable of expressing any emotion except anger. Stupid, super Bruce. Look, Cass, he didn't fire you because of anything you'd done. He did it because he feels guilty. He's worried that being backroll is bad for you. That the constant exposure to violence and evil was preventing you from healing the emotional harm you suffered as a child. Please remember that, listener healing the emotional harm you suffered, preventing you from healing the emotional harm you suffered as a child. Remember that if I don't, in terms of 50, please. Okay, so yeah, it's interesting that she doesn't say he shouldn't have fired you, but just like, hey, you're fired. Let's deal with it now. I think in a way she does, unfortunately, agree with him. I don't think that Bruce... I was going to say, I don't think that Bruce wants Cass to be happy. I I won't say that, but I don't think that was necessarily part of why he fired her. That's definitely a Barbara thing that uh, she wants Cass to be happy. I do have a question, of course, with when you're telling someone you're not happy and the other person says, I am happy. And then the other person is adamantly saying, no, you're not. 
How do you argue with someone who says that they're happy and who really knows best? So she, Babs does say, we've all noticed a change in the last few months. I don't know what it's about because you won't talk to me, but you have not been happy. And yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I had a conversation several years ago with someone who described me as, you know, not really showing joy. And I thought, what? Where is this coming from? What do you mean? And then that, you know, sort of sent me into a spiral of like, you know, what am I doing wrong kind of thing? So I I just don't, you know, if Cass is happy, does Cass know what happy means? But if she feels like she's happy, then how can someone else tell her that she's not? And, And we see this, I think, in many forms and versions of media where, you know, I was about to say a drug addict. So let's go to extreme examples because that's going to happen in 50 as well. But just, yeah, you know, if someone's doing recreational drugs and another person spots isn't like this is toxic behavior, you're not happy, you're hiding from something like, no, this makes me happy. I mean, what are you going to do? Maybe, unfortunately, maybe it does. I don't know. I mean, yes, it is toxic and bad behavior and it's unhealthy and unsafe, but maybe that is the only time that they can experience. I don't know. Okay. I'm not condoning drug use, but I, I just don't know who who is best, obviously. I do like this panel that is, I almost wish that there weren't a square around it, but just Cass's face of, of Barbara saying, I'll do anything to help you, which is interesting because you know what she is going to ask anything but that. And even though the synopsis did say about the costume, she doesn't outright ask for the costume. I think it's more like, let me be back roll again. I do have a comment just that Cass is speaking really, really well. So this is just an inconsistency. You know, I guess with practice, obviously, someone is going to speak better. But it just seems like from a change of writers, we have her struggling to speak to speaking pretty fluently. So not sure about that. (sighs) I do also think that this is very disrespectful and I don't know how she was able to do this so quickly. Very disrespectful that she steals Barbara's costume without her consent. How dare you? I also wonder when Cass learned how to sew because sewing is not easy as someone who nearly sewed through my finger on an architecture project in a school because we had to use some fabric for, for one of my courses Uh, It's not easy. And I was an adult who had a sort of normal upbringing. So I generally knew of sewing and had engaged with it in the past. But yeah, there's no way. Okay, moving on. Uh, This was very, it almost reminded me of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where some bad guys are taken care of and and Robin doesn't know what, what has happened. But it's also interesting, I'll get back to this, that Cass did say Patrick would never know. And yet, foolishly, she uses a nerve pinch that only two people know. And Batman is not an idiot. So you did yourself dirty there, lady. So here's the outfit, which I assume is mostly gray. And even though it's nighttime, but it's gray and blue, I feel like. Or they're just really trying to change it. But it's it's her classic outfit that she had worn a couple issues back. She sewed up the mask so that she, it's very similar to her older outfit, uh, cut a hole, I feel like, in the back of the cowl for her ponytail. She has a ponytail, which is 
unusual. And yeah, I would say it's gray. It just looks like it. I think she changed up the the bat as well. Oh, she sewed over it, sewed over that yellow so that it's more black or the yellow is just an outline. Oh, when she goes back to this group of girls, I guess that I remember her, this hope person using wearing that, but I did say IDK what that chick is wearing because it is very interesting. She's got a cop hat, which I guess we should intuit as her probably killing some sort of cop. And then a, I guess a sports bra or a a crop top. And then it looks like a, a, a Catholic school girl skirt and some combat boots. So very interesting to see those two uh, duke it out and the, the different outfits that they have. I do suppose that it is appropriate that Dr. Death is the one in this particular story since his appearance was tied to the beginning, I would say, of the Cass and Bruce breakdown with that whole storyline and also traveling overseas and, and Black Wind and all of that. So here we have it almost, I guess, coming at the climax of this particular breakdown. And I think my final comment is just that it is pretty gross that pieces of dead human beings are going into a drug. So... I think, you know, we get those ads about smoking, negative ads, and just that there's lead and all this bad stuff. And you're like, yeah, you're you're ingesting or you are pulling into your lungs some metals. And here you are, I guess, ingesting since it was a pill and having go through your, your system corpses. So does that make you a cannibal? I don't know. So, yes, I, I think this was fine i do of course just wonder about people and what they're saying i think that's my like biggest grievance is that they're both condoning what bruce had done and also saying like he should have gone about it another way in a way almost agreeing with them but they're also saying things that i don't think actually bruce was doing so I think they're saying it to make themselves feel better. I think they're speaking more for themselves than Bruce. So really, I think we just need to hear from Bruce. But of course, she's going to do what she needs to do. And yeah, of course, she steals a costume. So Barbara should probably fire her and keep doing it because I guess she she feels like that makes her happy. So maybe it really does if she is going to these lengths to uh, go back to being Batgirl. I'm going to give this 7.5 out of 10 stolen costumes. Now, remember what I said, healing from the trauma growing up, right? That might not have been the direct, but that is what we're talking about. Okay. So then we get to Batgirl number 50. Tough Love, April 2004, cover date. Writer Dylan Horrocks, penciler Rick Leonardi, inker Jesse Delberdang, colorist Jason Wright. Again, the synopsis comes from DC Wikia. Cassandra Kane remembers life with her father, David Kane. During one afternoon, she tried to hug him for support, and he viciously slapped her. They engaged in their regular combat, and she battled him to the ground. She kissed her father on the cheek, and he kicked her in the stomach. 
love. Am I right? In the present, Batman is confronting Batgirl in Gotham Cemetery. Batman repeats that he told Batgirl to stand down, and this is her last chance to do as she's told. Batgirl refuses, and Batman says that he doesn't want to hurt her. Batgirl observes his body language, smiles, and tells him he is lying. They battle while Dr. Death and the Lost Girls look on. Dr. Death has Sunny Love bring him a red flask with concentrated soul, and he throws it at Batman and Batgirl. The flask breaks on a gravestone infecting both of them batman tells batgirl to stop this now before he's forced to hurt her batgirl puts her mask on and says hurt me dr death remarks to sunny that this is perfect and they will have escaped long before batman and batgirl are finished robin arrives and punches dr death in his stupid face Batgirl and Batman take their brawl outside the cemetery as the drugs kick in they land on top of a train and mercilessly fight to the death Robin follows in the Redbird with Oracle helping him track their progress. Nightwing is dealing with a riot of soul junkies when Batgirl and Batman swing through. They ignore him and Nightwing easily recognizes that they are both on soul. Oracle sends Robin to get the antidote from Dr. Death. Nightwing tries to stop Batgirl and Batman, but they toss him aside like garbage. This is very interesting commentary going on in the synopsis here. Robin interrogates Dr. Death. He asks why Dr. Death turned to narcotics after a career in weapons of mass destruction. Dr. Death replies that a drug turning thousands of innocent partygoers into homicidal maniacs is a weapon of mass destruction. Robin demands the antidote, and Dr. Death insists that he didn't make one. Robin drops a vial of soul in the police van, infecting them both. Dr. Death admits that the antidote is in his coat pocket. He is horrified when Robin leaves without administering it to him. Two cops open the van doors and tell him that Robin did not spill soul. He spilled tomato juice. Robin rushes the antidote to Batgirl and Batman, with Nightwing following in the wing cycle. Batgirl and Batman fight across the tops of cars on a bridge. Their actions cause a large gasoline truck to flip over, spilling gas everywhere. Are you listening to me as I'm talking about this here? Robin and Nightwing quickly evacuate the bridge. Batman tosses an incendiary pellet and there's a massive explosion. Again, are you listening to me here while I'm saying this? Batgirl and Batman both dive into the water below where they meet again. Instead of hurting Batgirl, Batman pulls her to safety. Batgirl feels the fatherly love in his embrace and they sit together nicely on the shore. Batgirl tells Batman that her father never let her touch him or hold him. There was only fighting and hurting. Batman hurt her too when he sent her away. Batman explains that he needs to know who she is loyal to, her father, Oracle, or himself. <sighs> Batgirl tells Batman that she's not loyal to him. She's loyal to the symbol on his chest. They are sitting next to a tunnel and bats fly out of it into the rising dawn. Nightwing and Robin arrive with the antidote. Batman tells them to take it to the Batcave for analysis as he does not need it. Then he tells them that they should go as they all have work to do. Later, Oracle asks him if he was faking the influence of drugs. Batman has a gas mask in his utility belt, and he should have known that Dr. Death would try something like that. Batman tells her that the drug influence was real, although not as effective as Dr. Death claimed. Oracle asks why he would ever put himself and Batgirl through something like that. Here we go. Are you listening? Are you listening? Batman tells her that Batgirl needed it and he did too. It was a therapy session for both of them as Batgirl would not understand any other kind of therapy. He knew Batgirl needed to get things off her chest and this was the only way to let her express those feelings. Oracle tells Batman that he is crazy. He responds, quote, they, so they say, but it works, end quote. Batgirl and Batman swing off together into the streets. Let me begin by saying I really did not like this issue. And after reading it, 
I can't understand why anyone would think that Batman is a good person, character, hero, father, anything. Now, I like to put on the guise of being overdramatic. I like to troll Donovan. And I want to assure you that this is not troll Stella. This is not overdramatic Stella for or overly dramatic Stella for laughs, for kicks and giggles. I'm being authentic here. And, and I'll go through this. I also know that, of course, my opinion is not going to match up with other people's opinion. I will also be saying things that for cast fans to hear is going to be really upsetting and unsettling. And I do apologize for that. But I will explain where I'm getting what I am saying. So if you feel like you're going to be triggered, I guess, by me saying some upsetting things about Cassandra, then perhaps you should skip. Skip ahead maybe to the second part because, of course, we just have listener emails after this. Okay. So the cover is safe to talk about, I think, Batgirl versus Batman. We have Dr. Death there in the background, almost in a negative image. Got some bats there as well. Batgirl. Batman's very large. He's almost Dark Knight Returns large. And she's kicking Batman. I don't know why he's not dead because his neck is snapped back like that. But there we go. So, And again, this is 50. Exercise issue. 50 is pretty big. You know, was it worth it? I don't, I don't know. So clearly this opening here is supposed to make us understand why Batman does what he does in this issue, but it does not make it right or good. I want to put that because we are associating then Batman to David Kane. And that's not a good association. Okay. We also, if we look at this imagery here of her uh, somewhat on top of her father kissing him. Okay. So we should recall this because we have that father-daughter association and everything. Like, yes, it's messed up. There's no sexual connotation here with this. She's just kind of looking for love. But also, I would say, looking at this image, and of course, she's a child in this, it looks like David Kane is on his belly. So also just remember that. And she's just jumping on top of him and kind of as a grimace and everything. Okay, so we're, we're setting this up. So we should remember that this exists. And I do. I do. So I, I will, of course, reflect back on that. Okay. And this is very interesting. It was almost the last image in the previous issue, but he he looks, look at this hulking mass of a man just standing in front of Cass. I think that also sets a really poor tone. Obviously, it's perspective. She's not that tiny, but it looks, you know, like Gandalf and a and a hobbit here. But just how threatening that is, and it's just like this is this is not going to be very good at all. So this whole scene at the cemetery. And in particular, oh, I guess I will leave it right here, makes me really uncomfortable. Because to me, there seems to be a sexual undertone to it with this one. That this fight is role play and it is going to devolve into sex at any moment. Now, remember I spoke about 
just, you know, people, emotions, heightened situations gets people going in in various ways. You know, I think the the brain and chemistry and thing works interestingly. So looking at this bottom image here, you know, if they started having sex, I'd be like, well, that's how it was leading. Okay. Again, I did, I did warn you that I'm going to say some really startling things, but I'm going to explain it all. Now the opening scene is there to connect us with the fact to connect for us, I should say the fact that it is a father daughter situation. Okay. So David Cass. Okay. We've got Batman Cass, same situation. Now I want to take a step back really quickly and talk about connotation versus denotation. And this comes at a good time because I just finished my last module in my literacy course and it was semantics and syntax, which I do love grammar. And with semantics, we did in the reading, there was of course, talk about connotation and denotation. So listeners, you are intelligent. So you probably know this, but just let's talk about it. So denotation comes Uh, When it comes to vocab specifically, so I'm going to be using it in a different context, but they are the direct definitions of the word that you would find in a dictionary, okay? Connotation includes the emotional suggestions of a word. They are not literal. Normally, those emotional connections are very personal. So my emotional connection to, say, rape is not going to be the same emotional connection that another girlfriend of mine might have or a guy friend of mine might have. Okay, so we all bring something personal to it. So if I transfer these definitions to the scene at hand, and not vocab, okay, so I'm going to stretch it a bit. The denotation is that Bruce is using the language of of violence to show love and have it be cathartic for both of them, but really more so for Cass and really snap Cass out of this funk that she's been in. The connotation for me is the fact or includes the fact that we do know that there is role play like this where you're fighting and it turns into sex. We've seen it in other media incarnation. A man and a woman having a physical altercation with each other, gaining an argument, goes into sex right away. We've seen this, okay? Cass is wearing Barbara's Batgirl outfit, which the design has slightly changed because, you know, I guess Cass is talented sewing. But we know that that costume brings all the boys to the yard. We've seen that in the previous What issue was that? I can't remember. You know, that's just not my strong point. I never remember issue numbers unless they're like super duper important or emotionally connected to me. Donovan was on, if you recall. We know that this is true. Batgirl talks about, you know, she felt very glamorous in it. Tim Drake ogles her. Okay, so we have that going in. Cass removes her mask right here, like mid mid pushing him down. I'm not sure necessarily why you would do that, okay? She's leaning in for something. She is straddling him, okay, in an attempt to kiss him. And again, there is that connection with what she was doing with David Kane. But the, the straddling there, David Kane was on his belly. And here we have Batman 
on his back. There's always the Batman Batgirl romantic question from the outside. It depends on Barbara's origin story as to why she took on the cowl. We know that Bruce Tim, with some of the stuff that he had done with Barbara, that there is that question. Unfortunately, we saw something very similar to this played out in the Killing Joke animated film, did we not? Now, of course, I've never seen it, but I've seen some of those stills that there is, I think they're sparring, straddling, and then all of a sudden she initiates sex with him. So the connotation of all of this, I've given you all of this reasoning, is that this is a sexualized scene and it makes me really uncomfortable. Okay, you know, why is Cass taking her mask off throughout the fight multiple times? This is not the only time that she takes her mask off. Is it just for kissing purposes? And, oh, you know, she's older, too. So it's not a child. You know, it's a young adult. It just is like it, it, it seems really skeevy to me. Batman. Uh, we're moving on. So that I, that's just that sort of thing. The first thing that he says is, please, Cassandra, I don't want to fight you. Why does he leap to that right away when there are tons of steps in between what what's happening? You know, go home. I told you not to do this. I don't want to fight you. you. You could there wasn't another way to reason. And then she's like super excited. It seems like she's smirking underneath there. You're lying. So it's like, well, you do want to fight and we're going to do it. There is significant damage to property and danger to civilians in this issue. I was astounded by this bridge scene. The fact that there is gas, there are people near the gas on the gas and he Batman throws this pellet and explodes the bridge. You can't tell me that people are not dead on that bridge. And apparently this is necessary. Batman said that this was necessary. It That's insane to me. How can you argue that Batman is a good person, character, father, hero, when he decides to do this? Aye, aye, aye. We find out that the duo is on soul. So, you know, may, when that happened, I thought, oh, uh, maybe, maybe we can explain this. But Bruce knew all along. He knew that the soul was probably going to happen. He knew they were going to be on it. He wasn't as affected. So really that it's like soul didn't exist. He was going to do it no matter what. So no, I can't explain that or probably have any sort of empathy for what's going on. I just condemn this entire thing. I feel like Batman is a super jerk here asking her to choose. Now it's not between Kane and the Bat family, you know, choose. Are you loyal to your father, your birth father, or us? No, it's are you loyal to David Kane, your father, Oracle, or me? Why, why is he giving her that choice right there? That that seems really, really petty. I, I think you could have just eliminated David Kane because I think he knew that that was not going to be the answer. Basically, he's saying, are you loyal to Oracle or me? Are you loyal to your mother or your, your surrogate mother or your surrogate father? What a jerk thing to do. Again, this is not over dramatic Stella. This is like legitimately, I feel like that was a really stupid and petty question to ask. But she chooses the bat, which good for her. I, and it's not a surprise. 
and also, you know, flips him the bird. I feel like, no, not you, this. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. So why would you? I just don't. I really don't understand. I don't understand Bruce in this. I don't understand why anyone would like Bruce in this. I just think it's a really bad issue. And then his explanation of why this whole thing happened is just, it's bonkers. It is bonkers. So she needed it. We both did. Because Baz is like, why on earth would you do that if like the effect was was not, it, there wasn't an effect on you? Are you saying it was also kind of screwed up therapy session? therapy session? What other therapy would Cassandra understand? She grew up with no human contact apart from violence. Fighting is her language, Barbara, the core of her being, of her soul. She had things she needed to get off her chest and so do I. And then, uh, yeah, Barbara's like, you're crazy. I would have said you're bleeping crazy. And uh, yeah, so you say, but it works and smiles and then they swing off. So because they swing off, you know, Cass must have been right there when he's explaining. I guess she doesn't feel manipulated at all because I sure as heck would. But here's the big thing. Remember, 49, I said, remember this of uh, he wants you to heal from the trauma. Okay, so why would you lean in on someone's trauma in order to help them? How does that make sense that that's the only way they understand love and, uh, you know, the language? And so, yeah, I'm going to beat her up and she's going to uh, understand that I care about her. I mean, I feel like, remember, I said I was going to make extreme examples, but, you know, sexual assault for for some people. If this is something that was happening in their family, even though it like feels wrong, they might also associate it with love. In in uh because that might be the only thing that they are experiencing. Maybe the person is like very uh, apart from them, but then when this is going on, then um they feel like well you know this is not the best, but at least they're like choosing me. Would you lean in on that trauma and assault in order to to speak her language? I don't think so. I I think that this is really really messed up, and I'm sure that people will defend this. I unfortunately, I'll listen to you defend it if you want to, to write in, but I don't know that I will necessarily see, I'll entertain it. Right. But I don't know that I'll ever change my mind on this. And this is just very connotation connotative, I suppose. I don't know what I thought when I first read this years ago, but as I've matured and and seen things and, and learned new things, I feel like this is really messed up. And I think that there are just underlying layers to this that seems really inappropriate as well. I did not like it. I wouldn't care for, you know, Batman. I'd be like, why Why should I like Batman after this with the things that he's doing here? I just don't know that you can explain it. I think that even that scene, like, yes, Barbara is right. Like, it's messed up. It's not you're crazy. Like, that was really monstrous of you to do you should not have known that she is in your care as a child that's not the way that you're going to do it no other therapy would work oh my gosh is that what other people say when people are striking out on other stuff like well no other therapy will work might as well do something else you know an alcoholic aa is not working for them uh, inpatient rehab's not working let's just like make them suffer and and maybe drink several bottles of things so that they just hate the taste of alcohol. Is that what we're going to do? That's what it feels like is happening here. It's just terrible. The one thing I did like 
because I'll end on a positive there because I'm just raging against this. I don't think I've disliked an issue since uh, over there. What was that? 97, Batgirl 97 with the, was that Hope Larson or were we past that? I think we're past that, but all that stuff. The only thing I liked is this thing with Robin and uh, basically almost pulling a Batman trick of like, you're going to, oh, I dropped this vial and it was tomato juice. And that uh, is very uh, psychosomatic. uh, And Dr. Death's reaction to it is like, I, you know, what does he say? I can feel my brain slipping already. Mindless rage is filling my, and they're like, oh my gosh, what's with this tomato juice? So that was like, I, I, I did enjoy that. I'm going to give this one out of 10. I'm not even going to say one out of 10 what's because that's how serious I am about this. And I, I'm interested to see or hear any and all feedback about that. Again, again, yes, I read it. And I know what that first part is supposed to say. If that first part was not in it, imagine what that cemetery scene would have been like out of context, her straddling him, looking for a kiss, all of that stuff. Even even the end part. So that is the only thing really keeping this issue from really like everyone, I think, having the same read. But in my defense, again, there's a lot of connotative connections, I guess, that I'm making that's coming into this. And I think that it's not unrealistic, the things that I am saying to have that connotation. So obviously mine is going to be a different experience than other people. Okay, moving on. We've got listener emails. Mail time. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. So first, I'll start off with YouTube comments from the previous episode. So first of all, we have from Bagels After Midnight. It sounds like your friend Right Round, and he's spelled it W-R-I-G-H-T with a question mark, and Bagels After Midnight is Harry. He's got three different YouTube things. I think I already talked about this. He trolls me not once, but twice and three times sometimes. But anyways, it sounds like your friend Right Round had maybe pushed himself too much trying to prepare for a race after having taken 10 years off from physical activity. Indeed, this would have been the 10-year anniversary since the infamous 2012 Falmouth Road Race, where the conditions were so awful that many people he's spoken to have professed uh, to never run again, but I can only speculate. And I think if I'm correct, that that was like, was that a 10 K that he ran? I think with his sister's question mark, if I remember it. And I think it was in August and it was really hot. So that's what he's talking about there. And then he quotes me and says, uh, and this goes out to you, professor Coca jr. End quote. And perhaps any other Sugi fans in the audience and has an angry little emoticon there, because of course that's him. I will say though, that he confessed to me that he wasn't much at the time of speaking on this. Um, so whenever four weeks ago, and said he hadn't been much of a Sugi fan because he hadn't even listened to her album. And I said, that's really bad because I'm not a Sugi fan. And I listened to her album twice to give like it a fair shake. So interesting. Donovan Morgan Grant, probably former, former beloved because... He's not going to be happy if he listens to this, though I did tell him not to. I love you returning to your hypocrisy by saying that Oracle definitely shares the same misgivings about Huntress that Batman does. Yes, I'm always here to help when hypocrisy is happening. 
And then on part two, I wrote in so that I could remember. And I said, Stella, our podcasting brother, Tom Penrice, brought up a good point. You forgot three hours and more because Maroney woke up and still heard them. So... <laughs> Tom, like out of context, I think texted me three hours. I'm like, what are you talking about? And sent me an image of Nightwing. And I completely forgot about that when I was talking about them because remember they they knocked boots, Nightwing and Batgirl, when Maroney was tied up. And three hours is mentioned. Oh, because Maroney was conked out. And so that's when they decided to have sex. But Maroney woke up and still heard them. So that means their sexual activities were going for three plus hours. And I completely forgot about that. But it's super funny that Tom Panarese picked up on that and I didn't. Bagels After Midnight returns and says, oh, he's so disrespectful. You wouldn't have stunk at Mario Tennis if you'd simply learned that only there is <laughs> they receive. Oh, sorry, I laughed to hear it, that only the receiving player may return the serve. So the context of that is we're doing doubles, and I guess I moved one of my characters and returned the serve, and it, shouldn't, it was the person closest to the net, and the game, like, stopped and had this warning message of only the receiving player return, may return the serve, and we were cracking up over that, and he took pictures, so there you go. And no bread? You must have forgotten the pumpkin bread. If you need to cross that off your pumpkin list, then there you have it. I did forget after I recorded because I said that I was refused bread and, and water or the bread. So the true ghost guest host relationship had yet to happen. But I did get some pumpkin bread, I think, second to last morning I was there. And then finally, as far as Peter Griffin goes, I must say Seth MacFarlane was nearly inescapable as a film student at an East Coast school in their early 2010s. People were talking about being extras on Ted 2 and my mother my mother met someone involved in Family Guy at her place of work, and he reached out to me. The idea was that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were going to create Hollywood East at some point, and I guess nature abhors a vacuum. So there you go about the uh, the relationship between Mama Shoot and and Peter Griffin. She also said Celine Dion. She's related somehow, and there was somebody else that she mentioned. I don't know. She very interesting person. I feel like. She should be a, a guest on this particular podcast. I'd have to think of, besides interview questions, what she uh, should come on and talk about. And then finally, I almost forgot, from my Earth 2 BFF, Shana. And this is from Backroll Oracle. 226. BFF Stella, it is a fair question and it got me thinking. One could argue that bad representation is better than no representation because it still brings about some awareness. Also, by entering a bad representation into the public eye, it can raise an opportunity for a more widespread conversation to happen. It can inspire better representations to come into being as a counterpoint slash perspective or argument against the bad representation. A sort of dialogue can happen that allows for improvement and accountability. I suppose my perspective about queer romances is a little purist, preferring to have only good representations or nothing at all. I also admit I might be a tad sensitive on queer representation in media, since it seems to me that tokenism has been on the rise in recent years. I might have a different opinion if you ask me five to ten years in the future. I know I definitely had a different opinion ten years ago when there was much less representation. I really enjoy the feeding the game arc of Birds of Prey. I think there are some very interesting role reversals we see. 
The reveal of Helena being Black Canary and Dinah being the one giving her support back at the clock tower is all very fun. It also does a lot to highlight what Dinah and Babs each bring to the team and how they complement one another and how Helena might fit into the equation moving forward. And I've always loved seeing Dinah's response to Barbara firing her and starting to train more. One of the things that I think Simone does very well is depicting Dinah as someone who wants to improve and grow as a hero. It feels unbelievably refreshing to see a full-grown woman written the way Simone writes Dinah in her run. That being said, it never made any sense to me that Barbara's breakup with Dick would lead her to wanting to take Dinah out of the field or that Helena sleeping with Dick to be the only reason for Barbara not to trust her. As progressive as I think Simone's run is, I can't get over how much Barbara's decisions seem to be solely informed by her prior relationship in this arc. If other reasons were given in addition to her relationship with Dick, I don't think I would mind as much. And I'm on board with that, Shana. And we've known Cass and Steph don't care about their secret identities and Batgirls since issue number one and all the times we've seen them patrolling with their masks off. Remember when that used to be something that concerned Barbara? Yeah, sure do. I also remember when uh, Batman was upset about it as well. I wish it become a real plot point so there could at least be a reason for why Cass and Steph always seem to be so casual about their secret identities. Batgirls is starting to lose. Uh-oh. Batgirls is starting to lose me, unfortunately. And just when it seems like some restraint is being shown and using the narrative boxes p.s do you have any interest in the gotham knights game that was just released i'm not gonna lie it's pretty satisfying to be able to play a full-length game as bad slash batgirl even if there are some iffy things with the portrayal of her disability in the game shana yes so first of all shana all i have to say is you're lucky that you have a ps5 i do not have a ps5 and that is one of the games that I really want to play and am disappointed that I don't have a PS5 because for the most part, I can go around it and there are still enough PS4 games that I can play and some new games that are coming out like God of War Ragnarok came out on PS4, so that's good. Resident Evil 4 remake is coming out on PS4, so I'm super excited about that. I'm going to reach some problems, I think, most likely with whatever the next Naughty Dog game is and also with the next Spider-Man game is where I'm going to have issues. And one of the two is probably going to make me, but I don't have a thousand dollars to burn right now (laughs) as someone who is in a minimum wage job and also in grad school. So at some point I think I'll get it, but I am interested. I know it's not gotten the best reviews, Like everything was really hyped up and then reviews came out and were very middling, but I still want to play it. I think playing as Barbara is going to be super awesome and it looks like the co-op is still, I think, fun, even though people aren't giving it the the best of reviews and I guess the story is you see everything coming, but I often disagree with views. I always try to make up my own reviews. I always try to make up my own mind, so I am Most likely, yes. After I get my PS5, I will play that. But that's super awesome that you get to play it. And yeah, I can't can't wait. Thank you, everyone, for writing in. And yeah, remember, you can always comment on those videos if you are watching them. And you can always write in also at BackerlOracle2, BackerlOracle at gmail.com. And there's a lot that you can come on comment on in this first part for sure. Okay, well, I'm going to take a break. When I come back, I'm going to do some modern quickies, including, of course, Nightwing, and a full review of Batgirls number 12. And now, Zias's Radio Hour, for probably the last time, dedicated to Professor Coca Jr., because she did recommend this particular group. 
So it is going to feature Run Devil Run by Girls Generation. See you soon. Welcome back to the second part. Okay, so some modern quickies here. Batman 129. Failsafe has countered every move Batman and the Justice League have attempted. Is the Dark Knight out of options on Earth? I feel like that's basically all I have to say. I did have a question. The only reason I'm mentioning this issue, because Oracle is in it, is in the previous issue, we saw at the very end Oracle being hooked up. And I thought, oh, is she helping out? Was she taken, captured? So Oracle is hooked up to a surveillance system, and she is a hostage to fail safe. 
and Dick and I think Stephanie at the very least are also captured hanging upside down in a costume case, it looks like. I still have a question as to how Barbara got captured and hooked up and all of that and how it's like connecting to her. So I guess it is the chip and maybe the evil orb. I I don't know. So I still have questions, but at least that particular question was answered. Batman Urban Legends 21. We see, and then there are other stories, but we see Renee Montoya's last days as a detective before she became Gotham City's newest commissioner. And the only reason why I bring this up is that Kate, aka Batwoman, and Renee have a friendly chat on a roof. It seems like it's not been, oh, when would this have happened? I don't think that they were dating at this point in time. It, it does seem like they're friends. And uh, the way it starts off is, you know, how long were you there when when Kate calls to her? And I was just associating with like current times and like how awkward it is that her, you know, former girlfriends are both commissioners. I don't know necessarily where we're going to go with either of this. I, I don't even know when the last time is we saw Kate and Renee together. I remember and this was probably the first time I encountered a lesbian in comics was is it 50, 52, the weekly series. And I was like, what is this? What's going on? Which now it's like, oh, yay, lesbians. But before I was just like, this is this is interesting. I don't know what this is because it was, it was so long ago. And I remember when we started over with the new 52 that Montoya was like missing or something. She was like on the wall and Kate, it was understood that Kate had a relationship with her in the Batwoman title, but we didn't really know. So I don't know what that history is now if Rebirth goes back to 52, the the weekly series, and where's it going forward? I don't know what Kate is even doing. That's one of the blind spots, I think, with with the comics in the because I'm just not reading it. So I'm not sure. But both of her girlfriends are in a position of power. So that's exciting. But we're going to look at this. Nightwing 98. Look, you can see a butt right there. Nightwing meets Night Might. And Bitewing and Oracle and Danielle Di Nicolo. What? That's right. That meddling Night Might booped himself from the fifth dimension and after reading seven secrets he hitchhiked his way over to with d nicuolo what into our nightwing series trust us you're not going to want to miss this one so that is in fact remember that richard is that his name rick rick grayson that's actually who it is it is nightwing but this is yeah it's a super fun issue which i think you should be used to if you've got any sort of fifth dimension imp coming through here but i will say tom taylor how could you night might says i ship him with starfire but whatever makes him happy i guess and <laughs> barbara's excuse me which if there was ever a time to use icicle for bubbles that would have been the time and then she's just super upset speaking of which you two have had this will they won't they thing going on and while you've clearly uh, finally settled on yes they will i think this whole thing could use some progression and then all of a sudden look at this wedding a wedding is about to happen we've got a bunch of people invited they're concerned there's starfire she doesn't seem she just seems more flummoxed as to why she's there rather than upset but well, yeah look at all those people i don't know why huntress is over there but uh there you go 
And they don't get married. There's, there is this one part where Dick does say, not yet. <gasps> and then Bez is like, not yet. And then Bruce here is pretty funny. Night Might says, you know, why? What's wrong with happiness and commitment? You don't have to be like this guy, all self-denial all the time, deny himself love, happiness, carbs, looking back at Batman. And then Batman says, you've developed an imp, as if it's a disease. <laughs> like, oh, you've got this. And then Batman leaves he, that he doesn't have, have time for this. You also have Bitewing as the ring bearer, which seems appropriate. And Bitewing also later on helps out with the mission da, 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 and speaks like Cass used to speak, but she's very fluent now. So there you go. There is this really funny uh, because Nightmite is Dick's number one fan with, and, and also that girl is uh, Olivia, but uh, has this t-shirt, I guess for the fan club. And uh, it is the reversal of that one panel that we see all the time. And it is Nightwing slapping Batman, which he deserves it, especially after Batgirl number 50. And at the very end, because, you know, the devil, what's his name? Neuron? I haven't heard that name since I did that Fear Unleashed. What was that called? That with Shag that I had on and people doing their their wishes and, and all of that. So, yeah, Neuron, that's crazy that I've just not heard that for so long. And the final thing I want to say about this is just about... Oh, and also Raven pops up and is like, what's going on here? You have an imp? And Nightwing's like, don't start. I like this that Nightwing says about fandom, basically, fans and their their idols. Nightwing wants to know what Nightmite's real name is. And Nightwing says, in response to the question of why, why do you need to know? Because I shouldn't be your whole identity. If you have impossible expectations of me, then at some point I'm not going to meet them. It's okay to be a fan, but you shouldn't put me or anyone on that big a pedestal. So I I love that. I, I think that's something, a lesson that we can all learn. It, it's certainly, you know, where that that Christian idea of have no idols comes from. But I have learned, I you know, painfully, what happens when someone that you admire and you have put up on a pedestal, whether you knew that you did or not, disappoints you. And it's really, it's heartbreaking. And so I really try to disassociate myself like from, you know, I will have a love of something or someone, but I really do need to separate myself or else it, it gets really bad. And, and, you know, Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl, really Barbara Gordon is, is a prime example that, I, I think probably for years she had been on a pedestal and was, then the stories and the writing got really bad and that was really hard for me. And so being able to kind of step away, I, th I think is pretty healthy. But we also see just with celebrities and things, they're humans as well. Uh, one of my friends like to say they put their their pants on one leg at a time just like the rest of us. So yeah, they're no different and they're going to make mistakes. And I think if you're so connected and then all of a sudden they do something or say something that it's, it's super sad. I remember, I think this is something that always will get to me for some reason, but if there are people that I really like and I find out that they're, they're mean to their fans or mean in person and that the persona that they've crafted is, is, you know, if it's nice, it's, it's actually not true. That's the most disappointing for me. You know, in particular, when I go to see Broadway shows and I, I love, I haven't been able to do this for a couple of years, of course, because of COVID, but I love stage during it and just 
you know, being able to say like, great job and, and things like that. And, and some people are great, uh, but there have been like some really cold personalities that, and, and, you know, that's where empathy comes in because, you know, maybe something happened during the show or, or they're not having a good day. And so we need to try to be understanding there, but some people are just not, not kind for, and that's like really disappointing. You're like just deflated. Like I, I wish, I wish I had it known almost. So I will say my favorite Broadway actress is Kelly O'Hara and I, she is very kind. I've only, I feel like maybe twice I've stayed short and she's been there. I've been disappointed a couple of times that they've not come out, but it's often because I do matinees and, and sometimes they just don't come out matinees. And so that's, you know, the better thing about doing nights, but yeah, she is, she is very kind and, and seems like a loving individual. I, I very much not putting her up on a pedestal, but yeah, she's my favorite for a reason. So there you go. A lesson from Nightwing. There's also a lesson in Backrolls number 12, which we will get to as well. Okay, Backrolls number 12, Backrolls summer conclusion story, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, Art Neil Gouge, Colors Rico Renzi. Picking up where we left off in issue 11, Steph and Cass fight Riddler, but through riddles, he reveals that he is not the killer they are looking for. A half-dead killer moth KOs Riddler and asks the Backrolls for help because he's severely injured. The Backrolls are split as to what to do since there's Riddler, an injured killer moth, and a soon-to-be-dead Grayson Halloran. Cass thinks it's a good idea to split up by flying killer moth's jetpack while holding killer moth and going to Grace's location. This leaves Steph with Riddler, who, through more riddles, implies her father is still alive. They fight. 505 kind of helps, but somehow the trio defenestrate and land in water, messing with Fido's circuits and allowing the Riddler to escape. Meanwhile, Oracle directs a badly flying cast, and also one who doesn't care or doesn't seem to care if Killer Moth Wizard eyes. I mean, she literally flies through a billboard to Grace. So she's directed to Grace and also calls her cop buddy, Officer Brooks, and tells him what's up and where to be. After recording for the night, Grace, one martini in, is, or at least, is leaving when she's attacked and slashed in the face, maybe losing an eye like poor Eamon Targaryen, by Mr. Fun. He's been cleaning up the streets of people who are trash and not helping Gotham. And Grace is next. She offers to interview him, which is either a delaying tactic or given the fact that it is Grace and we know her being like this, could be the truth. And Officer Brooks arrives. Grace will most likely be collateral damage, however, but Cass arrives just in the nick of time. And again, with no concern for Killer Moth, she drops Killer Moth from a height and then dive bombs onto Mr. Fun. There is then a pretty cool fighting sequence. It's cool, but it probably shouldn't exist, honestly, between Cass and Mr. Fun, where she has to use strategy and her dark, traumatic past to defeat him. I guess he must be a good fighter if he's able to hold his own against Cassandra Kane the probably top five fighters in the DC universe. Grace is safe. Cass gives the podcast five stars and Brooks makes the caller. At a press conference the next day, Montoya says the department needs to do better and leaking the info was the department idea. Grace is in the hospital and maybe getting sober, question mark, slash applause. Babs is having a bad leg day, but fixes up Fido while talking with Alicia, which she seems to be popping up over again. Again, I think it's probably because of the movie. So... Maybe next month or the month after we won't see Alicia anymore because the movie's kaput. And Dick comes over to visit. Steph and Cass commune on the roof. Steph beating herself up again over letting Riddler go. And she mentions her father. Elsewhere, Jervis Tetch, a.k.a. 
Mad Hatter is getting some therapy and is planning a reunion between Steph and her dad and then bludgeons the therapist when he doesn't like the suggestions. And next, see you in the annual. Okay. This is, as the warning for this particular episode, there are a few times, I don't do it very often because I think that it is probably annoying because I should be giving comments, not asking questions, but I am going to ask why, why, why a lot just because I am legitimately confused as to why these things are happening. Maybe I'll offer my thoughts, maybe not, but it's basically because I'm asking why it's not a good thing. So I am going to do that in this particular episode. Also, the file that I have for this is not the best, so you won't be able to see very well, but at least you can you can see. So cover-wise, we have Riddler. His stick is, I wonder what that stick is called. I'm thinking of the, the Caduceus, I believe it is pronounced, that Mercury has, but I don't know that we could necessarily call that. We have maybe Killer Moth. And his bloody hands reaching out, maybe, I don't know. And then Cass and Steph are on the actual riddle point. And is there anything else I can see? I can't tell what the background is necessarily. I guess it's Killer Moth. Does he have yellow gauntlets like that? Oh, yeah. it's Yeah, it's him. Okay. So, and then he says, riddle me this. Backrolls, which one of you's, which one of you's gonna die? Does he talk like that? Does he talk like a gangster? Which one of you is gonna die? I don't think so. Anywho. Okay. Okay. Uh, First question. What was the point of the Riddler? Was he just a red herring? Was that his point? But why is he, if it's true, the red, so we all thought, I thought that, I'll speak for myself, that the Riddler was in fact the, the Ripper. But Actually, he was just giving these riddles to help. But it's it's so bizarre that this guy was going to crime scenes and plucking body parts out or whatever and replacing them with some sort of cipher code in there. I don't know what the point is. Why would he be helping? That doesn't seem like the riddles work, but the the reason for the riddles doesn't work. He's like, I'm going to help you catch the actual killer but here it's like he's still going to try to destroy them so i don't honestly understand why the riddler is here i also don't understand why steph and Cass are splitting up in this way and even before that because killer moth helps him out killer moth says need your help i'm wounded need your help and steph says and why should we trust you and i'm confused why there's that connection He needs help. Why would we trust you? He's not asking you to trust him. He's not saying I could help you. He's saying on the precipice of death, could you please help me? So I don't, that's a very strange connection there. Cass and and Steph deciding to split up, like it probably needs to happen, right? However, I don't know why this is the way we split up. So Cass takes Killer Moth and I think that's fine because he people thought that he was dead. So he's really in a bad way. But Cass should immediately take him to the hospital. And instead, she takes him everywhere. She goes through this. She flies erratically. She's not very good at this. She goes through this billboard. She let's see here. She drops him from a height. 
like this guy should be dead three times already. And then leaving Ridor with Steph, I feel like because Steph is clearly incompetent in this particular run, I'm not saying that Stephanie Brown is incompetent. I'm saying that that's how we're reading her here. And we're meant to apparently read her in this comic that we should not have left Steph with Ridor. I guess we needed to do it because of, so the purpose of this is because of the father revelation. And honestly, the father revelation Number one, really makes it seem like this is a Stephanie Brown book. And number two, with that weird Mad Hatter stuff, it it stinks. It stinks of an editorial mandate that something's about to happen. I guess we're bringing Clue Master back. I guess that's the big purpose. I don't know. But all of this is forced. How, uh, How I would have suggested is that Cash should have stayed with Riddler. Steph should have, perhaps without the backpack, because shouldn't they have their motorcycles taken killer moth to the hospital and then the girls should have reconvened together with grace Cass could have i don't know called for backup or had Ridor taken in somehow that's what should have happened i think with the steph situation i have no idea so they're fighting steph is holding her own and everything why on earth is there any need or way that they go through this window here? The window, is the window open? Question mark. I don't think it should be given architecturally how that is because that's a sliding glass door. There should have been a balcony there. So there's that's a big question mark. But she's leaping parallel to the window. Perpendicular would have happened. But it's like... It just makes her seem very incompetent. Like, how did she manage to do all this? I don't know. It's all very forced, I think. It doesn't make sense that a sliding glass door wouldn't have a balcony because that's dangerous um, since you're up on a height and apparently over water. And we just have to force Stephanie to and the Riddler to be separated. So, yeah, it's just like it doesn't make as much sense to me. It's all very orchestrated to get to a particular point. I was surprised to see that Officer Brooks has one leg. So I wonder if there, if he popped up again here. So I think I might be correct that he's going to be a minor cast character. And so I'll be interested to hear more about him. Mr. Fun. So first of all, I will say that this T-handle push dagger, it seems so familiar. I was like, who else uses that? Didn't I just read something with this and then i'm looking up his backstory and looked up his appearances and he is in the batman family miniseries that i covered recently and yes he does have that push dagger and so i thought oh my gosh here he is again i will say just like the riddler being used as a red herring and helping out in the case kind of that this seems very random as well we're only now connecting the vic- victims with they weren't adding to society, basically. And, you know, I mean, we know he's unhinged, but honestly, where is this coming from? I like what the fight looks like between Cass and Steph, but I disagree that the fight should have even taken place, that she should have had this much difficulty. And I mean, we see the strategy and everything. And apparently, what does it say? Her current adversary is different. He has no 
Oh, so little emotion. And this is the purple box, of course, explaining. It's like fighting an alien. It's unnerving and unlocks a door inside of her. It leads to a place she rarely goes, a time defined by pain. Old wounds reopen as the stitches come out and she relives the bitter lessons of her upbringing. Only when it's over does she close the door. So the the fight takes so much. I shouldn't say so much out of her. It The fight is so difficult that she has to go back and think about her upbringing and uh, the tips and tricks that David Kane has given her. It's very, it's very interesting. I, I, I disagree. I think I recall him being a skilled fighter, but I don't know about this. And I was going to look up Batman Family to see my notes on it to see because I remember each of those issues focuses on a particular member of the Bat Family, and then there's a fight. But I can't remember which person fights against Mr. Fun. So I do apologize about that. I did like Cass's parting comment to Grace that I gave your podcast to five stars. And I hope that in the future that Grace doesn't drink as much. I guess it takes a psycho to help you change your ways. Uh, hashtag Batman and Batgirl number 50. But yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. I don't know that she'll have an eye i feel like she's lost her eye there but i'm interested to see where that goes the ending steph is down on herself again and Cass is offering comfort and affirmation and barbara's not there so this is a trope at this point that steph messes up steph doesn't think she's worthy to be on the team Cass is there to give her positive affirmation but barbara doesn't because she's either not privy to the conversation or whatnot. I I don't know what's happening there. The mentor should be there. It does build this or build upon and augment this relationship between the two girls. But, you know, if someone is a mentor and Alicia even saying they've learned a lot from you, I don't know why she is not a part of this particular conversation. And the purple boxes, I don't think, I would say they're not annoying at all in this issue. And, you know, they give insight into what Cass is doing while fighting Mr. Fun. But they also have this insightful moment on the roof. It says the back rows aren't perfect. They're flawed, wounded, just like you and me. But friendship doesn't need perfection. It demands our vulnerability, dares us to expose our weaknesses. We can show each other our scars. And even though they don't disappear completely, friendship makes them hurt less. Together, we can start to heal. I love that. I think that is great. That's insightful. It's intelligent. However, why do we need it from a disembodied voice and not from one of the girls? Like that would have been, we know that Cass speaks well in this in this book and uh, intelligently and says things we would never expect her to say, why not come from one of the girls? I feel like that would have been more powerful and making it more personalized about friendship and things like that. And especially given what, what Steph is going through. So that's a nice ending. I would have liked it to end this way. The ending ending just seems really weird. And like I said, it just seems like something's being forced upon us that uh, we'll find out soon. So that's it for me on back rules number 12. I'm going to give it a lower grade just because again, why, why, why just was very confusing. It seems like it's all choreographed for a particular thing that we need master to be mentioned we need riddler to get away because the back rows aren't going to be the ones to pick him up we need the ripper to be caught 
and this and then we the in between but just like the rip i don't know all of these is just like i I feel like we weren't led to believe any of of the things that happened so that it makes it very weak in my opinion or i should just say weak we don't need that very modifier so i'm going to give it 6.5 out of 10 cup nudes okay my anime watch list i recently watched as i mentioned in the beginning romantic killer 2022 just came out 12 episodes and it is on netflix you can find it there anzu hoshino needs only three things in her life video games chocolate and her beloved cat unlike other high school girls anzu has has no time for or interest in romance but as she begins playing a poorly programmed 3d otome game a bizarre flying wizard named riri emerges from the screen and calls anzu subject one the first person who experienced a dating game harem storyline in real life because you find out later that it's uh, to help with the the population of Japan. Uh, it's kind of it's in fine print, which she doesn't read, but it comes back to that. And even though Anzu likes gating Sims, she doesn't want it in real life. So it's it's very interesting. Despite Anzu's fiery protests, Riri confiscates her favorite things to force her to focus on love. They orchestrate a series of unlucky incidents. They is. Riri, so they do use the third person pronoun. They orchestrate a series of unlucky incidents and romantic cliches that lead her to meet Tsukasa Kazuki, the most attractive boy in her school. Still enraged, Anzu is adamant about resisting Tsukasa's charm. As all the ridiculous fabricated scenarios help Anzu warm up to Tsukasa's pleasant nature, Riri throws other stereotypical, probably stereotypically pretty boys her way because adverbs modify adjectives and avoiding romance quickly becomes almost impossible by the end of this season because dear lord please let there be more she has four four people coming after her and some of them do seem like where did you come from like it's force upon her and these people almost seem like brainwashed. And so there's this idea of consent that comes along with it. And then you realize, oh, there's something else going on. But this is uh, the best anime, which I haven't watched many this year, but definitely hands down best one I've seen this year. I It's probably top five favorite anime that I have seen. And sometimes with anime, it takes maybe one to three episodes to get into it and and give something a fair shake. But by immediately by like the first episode, by the end of it, probably midway, I was loving this thing. And she tries to, because, you know, some of the guys are, well, all of them are cute, but some I find more attractive than others. And if something like cute happens, she will turn into like this man face and like, no, instead of like a, a pretty girl, she just tries to fight against everything and, and fight against this wizard. It is amazing. I love Anzu. And it also gets into some deep things. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much because I really think that you should give this a fair shake, but objectification is a really big thing. And, and that's something that Sukasa deals with and, and makes him anxious. And something that I thought about, you know, really in real life, especially, I feel like it's something that Henry Cavill deals with and and just people objectifying him, women screaming for men to take off their their shirts if if they're like at Comic-Con or something like that and see their muscles. And and they are, I think they are uncomfortable. And, you know, part of me is like, my gosh, you know, women go through this all the time. So cannot one or two men experience this? But also, you know, thinking that uh, they are human beings and 
we need to treat them as such rather than a piece of meat. Consent is a big issue in here. And uh, stalkers, stalkers is also something big and, and just that people have things going on in their lives. So it's one of those, it seems like very fantastical with what's going on and hilarious. Anzu is amazing. Uh, I love her. But then it it has, it like shocks you and takes turns of like, oh my gosh, this sort of thing is going on. So, which I love those anime that, you know, if it's slice of life, just like in real life, not everything is is happy and there aren't many stakes to it, but in real life, we, we, there are stakes and there, there is depth to things. So this really shows that. So highly, highly, highly recommend Romantic Killer. And I really hope that more seasons come out. It did say like to be continued, dot, 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 question mark at the very end. So here is hoping. And then my final segment, of course, is literature recommendations. And because I never learned from last time, I think Pachinko was the last thing that I, I talked about feel like I was just on the cusp of, no, maybe not. The woman who died a lot. Well, I read Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. And I know people feel like it. I mean, they just did the the TV series, I think, on Apple Plus. I It was okay. I know, I know that many people like, I know that Professor Coca really liked it. I think it's well-written. I recognize that it is good but i didn't care for it as much and i think it was one of those kind of going against the the popular grain mainly because anything said that could happen to this family did happen to the family it was interesting to see you know all the generations i feel like this is something that happens to me in that if i read something that's similar to something else or experience something or watch or play then the second thing suffers. And I feel like I already read this, but in a different culture with 100 years of solitude, because that goes through generations. But it was really interesting to learn more about Korean history, Japanese history, and then the really bad relationship between the Japanese and Korean, um, which is something that is like, I don't understand. I don't understand why there's so much hate towards the Koreans and that they're unclean. Like, where is that coming from? I then read two plays by August Wilson, The Piano Lesson, which is currently on Broadway, and Fences. And I do want to watch that film because I remember that had just, that's pretty recent with Denzel Washington and Viola Davis. And that was, those were good, though not necessarily uplifting. The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window by Lorraine Hansberry, which is something that I didn't know existed. Like Lorraine Hansberry, all I think about is Raisin in the Sun. So that was also, it had, I guess, like it kind of ended on an up, but that was a lot of, there's a lot of down, down, down in that as well. Season of Love by Helena Greer. Sorry, Helena Greer. And I know that because that was Tom's pick which goes against, I think, character for the next required reading. And Tom has known the author for years. And so she actually comes on the show and we chat about the book and interview her as well. So certainly give that a listen. We had a lot of fun. And then just finished The House in the Cerulean Sea by TJ Kloon. And I found that really fun as well, as well as heartwarming and deep. The main character goes through a great character shift. There's shipping and man-to-man shipping, which I don't often read. And yeah, so I think all good recommendations. There you go. 
Okay. You can send any questions or comments to backworld to oracle at gmail.com. The rape scene of Nightwing, your thoughts on it, maybe your thoughts at the time, or if you remember what, what it was like at the time, why it was so controversial. That's a question. Backworld number 50. What do you think about all of that? And how can you, how can you defend Batman in that? That's what I have to say. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Batgirl Oracle. Who knows how long that's going to last since Twitter seems to be going. Subscribe to the show on YouTube for an uncut version. Follow the Batman universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And support the Batman universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to My High Comics for sponsoring Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Grimm podcast. And because you listen to this, and I think you might be a fan of mine, if you're a fan of me, you should be a fan of Pumpkin. So I hope you indulge in the pumpkin pie, even if you're not celebrating Thanksgiving. But have a safe holiday, whatever that holiday or time might be. And until next time, Fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?